all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. For human beings to fundamentally change their entire diet in one generation is is not a sustainable practice. And I think that that's why we, this generation, um, are having so many systemic health issues because our diet from my from our grandparents to now, so let's say 65 to 90 years, has fundamentally changed. The diet is completely different. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 175 with beekeeper Stephen Piacentino. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn what the health benefits of bee pollen are, what permaculture is and why it matters, and how bee pollen is a nutrient-dense source of protein for young bees. Thanks, Aurora. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This week, we have listeners from Ottawa, Canada, all the way to Stockholm, Sweden, and from India to Mexico. Also, I'd like to say a big thank you to our longtime Lime Ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Chicago, Illinois. Number nine, Temple, Texas. Number eight, St. Paul, Minnesota. Number five, Groton, Mass. Number six, Somerville, Massachusetts. Number five, New York, New York. Number four, Detroit, Michigan. Number three, Corpus Christi, Texas. Number two, Brooklyn, New York. And number one this week is Seattle, Washington. If you love what you're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. And if you really love what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja patron. Just go on over to patreon.com and search for Lime Ninja Radio. And Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. Just search for us over there. And... As you may know, we have been giving away a copy of Dr. William Rawls' book. And last week's winner was Paula. So congratulations, Paula. We'll be sending you an announcement really soon, and your book will be on its way. We'll let the publisher know, and they'll ship it from there. 
Aurora, please tell us about Dr. Rawls' new book. Because we're giving away another copy? Because we're giving away another t- copy. This week. <laughs> so head on over. If you want to win the enter to win, just head on over to Lime Ninja Radio front slash win, and you'll see the entry form there. LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash win, and you'll win this book. So tell us about the book, Aurora. All right. Lyme disease is one of the most puzzling illnesses on the planet. Anyone who has suffered from its debilitating symptoms knows the frustrations of trying to find a cure. Many sufferers drag themselves from one doctor or alternative practitioner to the next, getting lost in a maze of lab tests, prescription drugs, and treatments. Thousands of dollars and months or years later, they realize they are no better off than where they started. Unlocking Lyme puts an end to this desperate quest. Written by Dr. Bill Rawls, a physician who overcame Lyme disease himself, this book is a comprehensive, practical resource full of solutions that work. For more info about Dr. Rawls, visit his website, RawlsMD.com. Thanks, Aurora. And will you also tell us about this week's guest, Farmer Stephen Piacentino? Stephen Piacentino has a farming heritage from both sides of his family. His family has owned a farm since 1920s. He joined the Air Force and studied business. He brought that training home to his family farm. Stephen takes part in CSAs, local farmers markets, wholesale agriculture, and also community outreach. He started keeping bees as a way to take responsibility for the way that his farm produces food, and bees were essential to that. Now beekeeping and collecting bee pollen is an essential part of his farm business. Thank you, Aurora. And here's our interview with farmer and beekeeper Stephen Piacentino. How did you get into farming? Well, my family's been in farming since the the early 20s. And really, it was two families that had adjacent farms, uh, and three brothers married three sisters. So the Arcuri farm had had a bunch of daughters, and the Piacentino farm had a bunch of sons. And, you know, in 1920, uh, everybody was on the farm all day long, so, you know, relationships between neighbors were, were far more common. So it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic. So I'm actually from two fairly large farm families in Deerfield, and uh, both of which still have uh, remnants of, of the original farms. That's incredible. And so what right now you're doing farmer's market type, are you doing crop sharing? What are you doing these days? Um, to be honest with you, we have a pretty wide swath. We, we do a little bit of everything. Um, we do the farmer's markets. We do CSA memberships so shareholders can buy into the farm. We do wholesale work. Uh, we're working with some community organizations to do some outreach and, and, to, and to increase access to some of the fresh local products. So we're doing a lot of things. I think the big thing, you know, a lot of folks frame in their mind, a farmer is this. Or, or a farmer is that, well, our farm, you know, I'm, I'm a business person first and a farmer second uh, because I was in the Air Force for 12 years and I studied business and economics. So coming back to the farm, I think that that gives us 
uh, a really big advantage over what the traditional New York dairy farmer, you know, uh, what most people think of. And that was going to ask. And so when did your farm make the transition? I'm assuming it was a dairy farm because almost all the farms up here are dairy farms. When did it switch over? When did you switch it over? Well, um, both of my family farms, uh, the Arcuri farm was dairy and produce. And then the Piacentino farm was primarily produce. Um, and my uncle, my great uncle, um, we used to call them tater because they used to grow <laughs> potatoes, you know, which is, is, is a really strange crop. Now understanding, you know, the soil conditions of Deerfield, New York, it's really not great for root vegetables, but that's, that's what they had in the twenties. That That's where the demand was. That's so fascinating. My brother-in-law is a potato farmer consultant to these mega potato farms. And he's right now stationed out of uh, North Dakota and they do these just yep. massive hundred acre and they're, you know, they're, it's all computer controlled and GPS tractors. And he's, he's in charge of, uh, basically, uh, fertilizer, water usage, cause they're all irrigated and, uh, pesticide right. use to bring everything down as, you know, to keep the costs under control and keep the crops healthy as possible. So I know growing potatoes is a big deal. There's, there's a lot that goes on and well, they, they get sick pretty easily. Yeah. And, an employee that I had in the Air Force, he actually was a uh, uh, subordinate of mine. His family ran the Idaho Packing Company, which is basically the warehouse and packaging and, and storage and distribution for all those potatoes coming out of Idaho. So I have a little familiarity with potatoes, but but not very much. <laughs> it's it's mind the scale that they do it on is mind blowing. It's oh, absolutely! It's it's insane. So it's nice to bring it down to where you are to the to the family farm and a way to keep these family farms going. So, given the background that you've got vegetables, uh, you know, at some point there was dairy there, but obviously with the vegetables, you need pollinators around. And I'm assuming that's Perfect. what got you into beekeeping as well. Yeah. Well. Absolutely. Nowadays, you have to be a multifaceted farm. Um, and, and just to make it, you know, click with, with the internet savvy folks of today, you want your cart, your little cart icon in the top corner, you want people to fill the cart when they come to your, when they come to your table or when they go to your website. So you want to be able to offer a range of products. Obviously, pollinators are, are key in that, especially for the segment that we're operating in. We're trying to be inside a, a niche. We're, we're doing garlic, we're doing blueberries, we're doing, we're doing plants that require pollinators. And as you know, there's not as many natural pollinators in, in New York or, for that matter, the United States as a result of lost habitat, you know, chemical usage and different things like that. So we, we had to become a apiculturist. We, we, had, we had to get the bees. We, we had to learn that, that system. So... Now, b- before we get deeper into bees, can you just let's just a little sidebar here in terms of quality of produce, meaning like the nutrients in produce, you know, what you're getting even in something, you know, a fancy organic Trader Joe's kind of thing versus something you're getting off of a local farm. What What's the difference? Right. I mean, why, why bother? Well, and it's, it's really funny you mentioned Trader Joe's because I, I think Trader Joe's has an interesting – relationship to food 
Um, Trader Joe's is actually Old South. So Aldi's has has two brands. There's two brothers that are at the helm of you know one of each brand. Aldi's North is the common Aldi's that you see when when you drive around. It's it's labeled Aldi's. Old South, for purposes of U.S. sale, is Trader Joe's. Both of them have a similar dynamic. They're uh, they're moving towards a non-GMO, no artificial flavors, colors, preservative model. So a Whole Foods model, but um, you know, obviously it's scaled so that the price points are more reasonable. Um, the difference, to answer your question, would be production methodology is primarily what what delineates. Uh, nutritional density. The bees are important to create to keep the plants healthy. Um, you know, from a pollination standpoint, and alleviating some stress on the plants, it inevitably increases the yield and increases the quality. So, you know, if we can remove these stress factors, um, you know, from an organic, sustainable permaculture frame of frame of uh, farming. We can increase yield and we can reduce, uh, you know, the chance of blight and disease and those types of things. Whereas a conventional farm model would just prescribe such and such fertilizer, such and such spray, you know, to prop the plants up until until the harvest could happen. We have a more long-term goal. Our goal is sustainability over a long period of time. So these these legacy plants, the blueberries, horseradish, um, you know, multi-seasonal plants that are going to continue to yield, we want to keep them healthy for a long time. You know, you mentioned the word permaculture, and I've heard that mentioned a lot of times. I have this vague idea about what it is, but what will you define that for us? Absolutely. Permaculture is a system in which animals, humans, uh, interact with, with the food system so that the food system is sustainable. So the inputs that that food system is receiving are, are going to be minimal from a human standpoint. So, uh, you know, to for an example, the standard farmer who tills his field every year is using human labor and you're using a mechanized uh, piece of equipment, whereas a permaculturist like me would say, wow, if this ground needs to be turned up, I'm going to use animal labor. I'm going to put pigs on the pasture to turn the ground. I'm going to put chickens on the pasture to turn the ground. And so our model is a little bit different. We leverage animal labor, and and in doing so, it creates a complete system. So my yields are less, but my cost inputs are less. So it's a relative system. It's more sustainable, and, and it puts a lot less burden on the farmer because cost of entry is the biggest impediment to farming in America today. So if, if you can remove some cost of entry, if you can remove some financial burden, some input burden, um, I, I think the, the ag industry, the farm industry is going to benefit ultimately. I don't think people have much of an idea of just how expensive farm equipment is. And you, you, your entry level, you're talking about a new machine, you know, $250,000 half a million dollars, a million dollars for a harvester is not unheard of. It's just, it's ridiculously expensive. That's right. That's exactly right. And and the fact is we have this conundrum in our society and we have this concept that we're not producing enough food. We're not producing enough food. All the USDA regulations and all the subsidies and benefits encourage this mega monoculture, super farm system and, and my belief is that 
it is easier for the USDA to manage production when there's only a handful of producers. Um, but you look in the 18th and 19th century, the way that we produce food, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the way we produce food. We utilized it more efficiently. You had less shrink. You had less waste. You don't have truckloads of food being thrown away at the U.S.-Mexican border because they're not aesthetically pleasing, because the bananas are a shade of green too dark. Um, that didn't happen back then. So this, this pressure to create more is artificial. And, and I think that's what drives this, this large equipment, this large cost impediment, um, because the concept that, geez, if I don't get super, super big, I'm not going to be able to survive. And the reality is a lot of American farmers are strapped with a absolute mountain of debt that their families are never going to get out from under because of that mentality, because of that concept. Literally across the street from me is a Mennonite family who owns a farm. They do an organic dairy and it's traditional farming. They're not doing anything super fancy. Um, but because of their religious belief, they don't take on debt. And so they've been able to survive through some of these lean times with the, the dairy market and the price of milk coming way down. And that's, that's their advantage. And it's, it's really right. quite amazing. And, and again, I don't want to get all the way into like the, the economics and the politics of farming, but these farms, even a small family farm, so they're, they're milking 70 head, right? So it's a small, small size operation and millions of dollars right. are coming through this operation and they only keep a small part of that. I mean, they're multi-million dollar businesses, but the farmer only sees such a tiny bit. They have to pay for everything, everything. They pay for the milk to be taken away. They pay for it to be processed. They pay to be part of the the uh, co-op that they're part of, and the co-op sets the well, price. Well, tie that in. To tie, to tie that all into the bee conversation. Good. Thank you for bringing us home. <laughs> that, that, that's part of the reason we got bees. We got bees because we understood that we had to take ownership in not only the production, but processing of our goods. So um, the bees are pivotal in that. We would not be able to produce what we produce and then be able to turn around and process it without the interaction from the bees. And, and the pollen is a very small piece of that, but we feel that it's very important for us to continue to collect the pollen, to continue to, to distribute it, and educate folks on it because it is a very, very powerful food source that I think has fallen out of favor because lack of knowledge, because of monoculture, because you have these huge bee operations that are not going to spend the man hours and the labor to collect it. Um, and, and therefore, it's kind of a catch-22. There's a lack of production because there's an assumed lack of demand. So we're trying to keep this, this kind of niche thing alive, and, and I think it's very important, and I appreciate you reaching out to us with this interest about it. You're welcome. How many hives do you have? We have 28 hives. We're, we're, on, we're on course to double that this year. Um, we generally split hives, assuming that they're all healthy. Um, we'll split them in, in the spring after, after they start to build up. And, um, and that's the general dynamic of the beekeeper. The problem is, if you lose a lot of hives, and then you split the ones that you have left, you're kind of you're kind of neutral ground. You didn't really gain anything. So that's the huge problem with 
with a lot of the blights and a lot of the chemical usage and everything else that's resulting in depleted bee populations, these beekeepers, these small family farms like me, can never get ahead. We can never add hives because we're replacing what we lost. So it's a constant struggle. So you'll lose up to half a year? Um, last, well, there's a, there's a USDA report that comes out that, that will tell you how many bees nationally, what the average was, and they'll do a regional breakdown. New York was at 25% last year. Uh, we've seen years that are as bad as 50%. Uh, some of them go north of 50%. Where we are, we're very fortunate. You mentioned the Mennonites. I have about 50 or 60 Amish families around my farm. So we're very isolated from chemical usage. So you could say that perhaps, and I've done the rough math, it's about 1,800 acres of, of farmland around us that uses no chemical pesticides, fertilizers, or, or any catalyst of any kind. So my bees are pretty safe, but that's not the case for everybody because, as you know, bees can travel up to two miles. So if the guy next door is spraying all kinds of stuff, my, my, the bees potentially could bring it back to the hive, and then you have health issues. And let's talk about exactly what bee pollen is. Because people know pretty much, well, what honey is. But what about sure. bee pollen? And how does it collect well, and what's the process? I'll give you the definition of bee pollen and then I'll, and then I'll kind of give you the lay term, um, you know, how, how I frame it in my brain. Um, and, it, and, and this is just Webster's definition. It's a fine powdery substance, typically yellow, consists of microscopic grains discharged from the male part of the flower or from the cone, and I'll get into that a little bit after. Um, each grain contains the male gamete and fertilizes the female oval. So in other words, the pollen is the sperm in lay terms, not to be crude, but, but that's essentially what it is. It's the catalyst for fertilization. And then bees collect that. Absolutely. So through pollination, you're basically exchanging these, these sex cells. You're exchanging the pollen from flower to flower. And, um, you know, some flowers require the same species of flower pollen, and some will cross-pollinate with, with other species. You know, apples are a very good example of that. A lot of apple uh, types will cross-pollinate. Uh, blueberries are the same way. And the bee collects these, right? They're cross-pollinating. They're visiting all these different flowers, all these different plants. Then they come back to the hive. And then what happens to the pollen? So essentially, the bees are going into the flowers to get nectar. Nectar is a primary food source for the bees. The pollen is collateral damage for all intents and purposes. Bees, um, if you've ever looked at a bee very, very close, you'll notice that there's little hairs and little, little filaments on the bee. Those are for the pollen collection. The pollen basically becomes jammed between these hairs, and when the bee goes from flower to flower, it discharges some of the pollen in the process of trying to get down in into the flower to get the nectar out. When the bee travels for a long period of time, that pollen will build up and become a granule. So a lot of people think that those little chunks of pollen you see, excuse me, as a finished product are, are how they come out of the flower. Uh, uh, it's a very light yellow dust that comes out of the flower, and that aggregates on the bee's legs and the bee's body over a long period of time. And, you know, I say a long period of time. It could be all day. It could be several days. 
um, until that becomes a granule. So that's potentially thousands of flowers the bee has visited to create that one granule of pollen. Um, and then when they enter the hive, um, that pollen is utilized as a food source because pollen is extremely protein dense and it, it fulfills a lot of the nutritional requirements for the bee. So that's, that's a secondary use, <clears throat> excuse me, of the pollen because obviously the primary goal is to get the nectar out of the flower. So if you open up a beehive, I mean, I think we've all seen the sections where the honeycomb is, right? And they've stored the, or they've got the little larva and they're feeding the larva in there too. So where does the pollen fit in? Is like where in the hive is the pollen? Very good question. Um, If we don't have any pollen collectors on the hive, all the pollen, we're making the assumption all the pollen is going inside the hive. Um, Some of it's going to fall off the bee. And the workers, in the process of cleaning the hive, they're going to utilize that pollen. They're going to eat it. They're going to feed it to the, to the uh, you know, the new workers that, that are coming up. The protein in that is extremely important, and I think that's that's the that's the key nutritional requirement that the bees have with the pollen, besides a lot of the vitamins and minerals. So that's really how the bees going to interact with it. Um, and on the human side. If we have a goal of collecting the pollen, um, we'll either have a lower collector, which goes underneath the super, and so when the bees enter the hive from the bottom, they'll crawl up through a grate. It's basically um, either mesh or it could be like a plastic comb that they crawl up through, and the pollen will fall off of their legs and body onto a tray, and then we'll take that and we'll dry it. Or we can have a system in the front of the hive it, it functions in a very similar fashion, and that's basically how humans procure the, the pollen. But, of course, you don't want to take all of it. You know, you want to take a marginal amount. You want to take 30%, 40% of the potential pollen going in because, again, if you take all the pollen, then, then the young bees don't have very much to eat. So it's a balancing act on the, on the atheist side of it. So here's a bad analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. So essentially, pollen that's collected here is okay. No, no, no. Let me back. I was going to say similar to milk, but where does where does the honey come in? Because the honey stored food as well. So when they're when, right. when they're feeding when they're feeding themselves or whatever, they take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, or how does that work? Um, actually, that's a very good question, and. Bees have a very inner understanding of their nutritional requirements, and and the reason they're so successful all over the world is because they're very adaptive. So, you know, if they're in an area where the nectar does not provide, um, you know, a certain vitamin nutrient, you know, they will they will use other things. Um, going to the pollen, uh, the pollen is an early food source. So when the bee is, is first brooded, it's more likely to get the pollen in the stage in which it's growing, and then it will transition to the dextrose, to the, to the honey, after, which is, again, the nectar that has been depleted of a lot of the moisture content, which that's, that's what honey is. It's, it's basically concentrated nectar. So it, honey, nectar is to honey as sap is to maple syrup. I was going to say it's maple syrup. Yeah. Essentially, and and the bees are performing the function of concentrating it. 
So to, to more directly answer your question, the pollen is required during the stage in which the bee is growing because of the, pol- the uh, protein density, and then they will eventually transition to, um, you know, the dextrose, which is the, the honey. Okay, so that makes that makes total sense. Is as the bee's evolving, it needs to build tissue. It needs some protein to build all these body parts, essentially. And then once it's completely right. made, it can transition over to more uh, energy, more of an energy source, and less of a exactly. a, a building exactly. source. They have a higher energy requirement yeah. once they're actually flying outside the hive. Yep, you're right. Now we've set up here, we set the table for why pollen is a health food. So what can you tell us about the health benefits of pollen? Obviously, what you're saying is a good source of protein. Well, absolutely, and that's just one of of many benefits. Um, I always try to tell folks, and again, I'll go back to the farmer's market a little bit. Folks ask me, well, geez, you know, raw honey has pollen in it, and raw honey is good for you. Why is taking the pollen directly good or better? Uh, What's the difference? And... The difference is very simple. The raw honey is nectar, which is a dextrose, which is a sugar. So if you're somebody that is on a limited sugar intake, if you're diabetic, if you can't have all that sugar, or heck, you know, there's folks that just don't like honey. Um, I don't know any of them, but I'm sure there's some out there. Why is it beneficial? Well, in addition to having the protein that we talked about, honey is chock full of B vitamin, so a B vitamin complex, which means you got three, six, twelve. Um, you have amino acids, um, and there's a lot of um, long chain and short chain fatty acids in in pollen as well. You have a lot of vitamins and minerals, depending on, and of course, all of that is relative to the flora and fauna that's in your region. Um, but you know everything from vitamin A, you know potassium, magnesium. Uh, vitamin B, vitamin C, um, iron, folate, there's lipids. There's So it's a complete food. Um, and, and to frame that, if you take a Centrum vitamin, say it's 500 milligram vitamin, your body cannot recognize all the components of that vitamin, and therefore what happens? You excrete a lot of the vitamin that you're taking. And... That results in, you know, discolored urine is normally a chief sign that, hey, look, my body's not absorbing all this vitamin that I'm taking in. So these vitamin manufacturers then say, well, if we know that you're going to excrete 70%, up to 70% of what we're giving you, we're just going to overdose you on these vitamins, which sounds all fine and dandy. It's, it's a numbers game. But they're stressing your body. They're stressing your kidney. They're stressing your liver because you have to... You have to filter all that stuff out and get rid of the stuff you don't need. Um, Whereas a natural product like pollen that has all of those trace materials in it uh, or trace minerals and vitamins in it, um, it is a natural food. So, So the nutrient receptors in your body can recognize everything that's in it, which makes it 95%, you know, absorbable in your system so you can metabolize 95% of what's in a pollen. So what that means is you can take a smaller dose and have a greater benefit than you can from an over-the-counter product. 
think that's so important. I had a nurse as a patient many, many years ago, and I was asking, so, you know, do you take any supplements? And she says, no, I don't take uh, any multivitamin. She said, you know, we used to refer to those as bedpan BBs. <laughs> So she's saying that, you know, you're talking about it if they're actually broken down and absorbed. And there's quite a bit of information out there on some of these one a day type things where they're not even broken down and digested and they really just go right through you. Uh, so they're minim- exactly. minimal value, much, much better off eating, eating foods of which bee pollen is just one of these old foods that's gone by the wayside. Yeah. We used to eat so many different things and really talk about monoculture, our diet, even though, you know, we're eating Mexican food and we're eating Chinese food and we're eating some Thai food, but it's, but it's all chicken, <laughs> right? It's all chicken. Well, and, and the problem is, too, if you look at the availability of different crops, our availability or a variety, availability of, of, of a given variety has decreased decade on end. So our grandparents had exposure to hundreds of different types of potatoes. We have exposure to six or seven at the most, and that's assuming that you're frequenting the farmer's market and you're not just buying the standard uh, russets from the grocery store. So I think it's really, really important to note that those other varieties served a very important part not only in the ecosystem but within our diet. So for human beings to fundamentally change their entire diet in one generation is is not a sustainable practice. And I think that that's why we, this generation, um, are having so many systemic health issues because our diet from my from our grandparents to now, so let's say 65 to 90 years, has fundamentally changed. The diet is completely different. Um, you would be hard pressed to mimic the exact meal that was on your your grand your grandparents' table, um, because y- you can't source the ingredients. They no longer exist. They no longer are grown. So, again, that's why bees are so important. Bees are important because, as a society, we need to start cultivating a more diverse biosystem and a more diverse health, uh, food food system. Really. You know, you've talked about the benefits of bee pollen, and can you talk about the benefits of honey for a little bit? Like, why why should we eat honey as opposed to just sugar? You know, is, right. are there or or right. even is is it you know is it more important or the more benefits to it other than just being a sweetener? Let's put it that way. Absolutely. Well, and I'll and I'll compare it to sugar. Um, so sugar is a glucose. Uh, we know that our body regulates glucose using insulin, and glucose in, in, in a refined sugar, like a refined cane sugar or any of the sugar substitutes, um, is a short chain. So what happens is your body basically is able to absorb it and burn it very quickly. The problem with the glucose is that it's a stimulant. So when you eat it, you feel good. It becomes, it's, it's addictive. Um, it doesn't give you sustained energy. So it, it is a quick burst of energy. It's a stimulant. And then the energy dissipates and it's quote unquote, the crash. You know, if you've ever had said, Hey, my kids are on a sugar rush and they're going to crash. That's what glucose does because it's a refined sugar and it's the way that your body processes it. Honey, on the other hand, is a different type of sugar. It's a dextrose. 
Dextrose is a longer sugar molecule. It's harder for your body to digest, which is not a bad thing because that means it's a more sustained burn. You know, it's the difference between throwing paper in your wood stove or throwing a big log in your wood stove. So if you throw paper in your wood stove, you get a big flash of heat right up front, boom, it dissipates, and then there's nothing. If you put a log in and you stoke your fire and you can burn that log over a long period of time or a longer period of time, um, it, it is better for your body. Your body is more neutral. It's more regulated. And then what about in terms of immune system and allergies and things like that? You hear about people talking about, well, I took some pollen to help with my immune system, help fight off a cold, or I had some allergies to plants in the area, so I thought I'd try some uh, honey to see if that helped calm things down. Well, and and I'll tell you this, and this this is something I say quite frequently at the farmer's market. The reason raw honey is good for you is because it has pollen in it. Right? So if raw honey did not have pollen in it, or if honey did not have pollen in it, it would not have the health benefits that it has. So when you go to the grocery store and you see honey sitting on the shelf that is in, in a liquid form, it has been superheated and it has been filtered. Um, most people think of those things as good because they think, okay, uh, it's been heated, bacteria has been killed, it's safe. It's been filtered. Oh, that's a safe term. Okay, wow, okay, this must be good. In fact, those are both negative things uh, in regards to honey because what you're doing is when you superheat honey, you're killing all of the probiotic and beneficial bacteria that live in the, that live in the pollen. And those beneficial bacteria actually harbor a lot of the health benefits behind eating raw honey or pollen. Uh, those probiotics, unlike dairy probiotics, survive the, the contact with your, with your gut, and they make it to your lower intestine where they're actually needed to digest food. Um, a lot of dairy probiotics like kefir, yogurts, things like that that have active cultures, a lot of those die off in your stomach before they even get to the affected area. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. That's the heating of the honey. Anytime honey has been heated over 120 degrees, which is the terminal temperature of a beehive, coincidentally, um, it kills all the bacteria, and it no longer harbors that benefit. The second thing is the filtering. When you filter honey, you're filtering out all of the particulate matter, i.e. the pollen, um, and therefore rendering the honey void of all of those vitamins and nutrients. It's basically a syrup. It's basically like high fructose corn syrup at that point. There's really no benefit to honey that's been ultra-filtered and heated. Um, other than it's a dextrose versus a glucose. So it's still better for you than a refined sugar. Don't get me wrong, but it's not as good as a raw, uh, a, a raw sample of honey would be. Yeah, that's so interesting. It reminds me of a story I heard a few years ago. There was a goat farmer who, let's see, they lost... They, they inherited all these kids, so these immature goats who were still nursing, and they didn't have enough milk from their farm to feed them. So they went out and they, they bought some, some goat's milk, and they started feeding these, these young kids this purchased goat's milk. And, and the, the little kids, these little goats, were, were not thriving. Matter of fact, they're getting sick, and some of them even died. And they're trying to figure out what was going on. And... 
what it turned out, they figured out that the milk that they had bought, the goat's milk that they had bought, was pasteurized. And not just pasteurized, but super pasteurized, right? Which heated to two whatever that is, two twenty, two twelve, whatever that is, and it killed yeah, off the such. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So it kill it killed off the nutrition of the milk, and that's that's. I mean, we're getting into the quality of food issue here. That's what we're eating all the time. So their solution was they found a producer who only he did the old fashioned, not the ultra pasteurization, but just old fashioned pasteurization to one forty, and that was low enough that using your term, it wasn't terminal for the milk. And then these little kids, the little goats, started thriving again they the nutrition was still there the enzymes were still there so it's the having real food is such a critical piece and you know just having the organic label doesn't make it real you know there's still massive farms doing mass production of food and just because they don't spray it with evil chemicals doesn't make it real food it just makes it non-crappy food well in fact the organic label doesn't even designate that it's not been sprayed. It's just not been sprayed from a chemical that's on the USDA restricted list. Uh-huh. So a lot of people have a misnomer about this. They go, well, it's organic. They didn't put anything on it. That's not true. Good. Set me straight. Organic <laughs> means, yeah. Organic means that they follow the USDA uh, organic guidelines, which allow farms to use certain chemicals that the USDA deems safe. Well, I mean, like I said, we'll keep it away from the political side of it, but a lot of those are not proven methodologies. A lot of those chemicals don't have long-term testing behind them. So, you know, when we're eating organic food and it's been produced by a big operation, like, for example, the organic food that goes into Walmart, nine times out of ten, is coming out of California or the Shenandoah Valley or, or those types of places where the organic practice is not sustainable. So organic and sustainable, unfortunately, we think of them as being synonymous, but they're not. Um, Production methodology plays a huge role in nutritional density. That goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. And to cite some example about the milk that you're talking about, we actually did the exact same thing with our goat kids this past year. We had taken on goat kids from another farm. We didn't have enough milk. And what we found disrupted their stomachs more frequently than the milk being pasteurized was whether it was homogenized. Yes. So what happens when you homogenize milk, uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure you're aware, but you're breaking down the fat molecules so they don't rise to the top and separate. Well, in doing so, you break the lactose molecules. Lactose is a big, long strand. When you homogenize milk, some, some homogenization practices break up the lactose and therefore the nutrient receptors in your body, the same ones that recognize pollen as being good and vitamins as being unknown in many cases, see this truncated lactose molecule and go, geez, I'm not sure exactly what this is. Let's get rid of it. And that process involves the goat being sick. They can't absorb the necessary nutrition that they need. And, and the same thing works in human beings. Most people that are quote-unquote lactose intolerant probably are just drinking homogenized milk and that, that altered lactose molecule is not being recognized by your body. If, if people transition to unhomogenized raw milk, they would probably find that they're not lactose intolerant at all. 
You know, this reminds me, it's one of my soapboxes that I stand on from time to time, and you've allowed me, I'm going to pull it out and stand on it. <laughs> we, we, meaning you, me, the society we're in now, eat foods that have the same name of things our grandparents ate and right. sort, of, sort of look the same. They're not the same thing. Milk is not the milk that your grandparents drank. That the, the, right. the farmer or the, the milkman delivered to the front of the door where the cream was at the top and, you know, the half and half was in the middle and the skim milk was at the bottom. And you either skimmed it off the top, the cream off the top, if you wanted cream for your coffee or tea, or you shook the milk up to mix it back up again. It, just little things like that. I mean, peanut butter is, is another one of my favorite things. All the junk that they do to, to peanuts and peanut butter, a loaf of bread. I mean, you just go down the list and, you know, the the traditions carried over, but the nutrition didn't, right? So we have this way of eating that's based on food that isn't available anymore. And it's one of the right. things that's that's killing us. It's one reason why you're hungry after you eat some of this food. And, you know, you've eaten and half an hour later, 45 minutes later, you're looking around for something else to eat because the body said, okay, that was filling. However, where's the nutrition? You know, right. Just like you said, the bees have the intelligence. If they're not getting enough of the protein out of the honey, then they'll convert over to eating some of the pollen as well. It's it's it makes it so difficult. And once people key into that, my audience actually is pretty savvy about this, but I hope they find this reaffirming. You know, just small things like uh, uh, foraging for greens in the spring to put on your salad. You know, whether it's uh, dandelion greens or fiddlehead ferns or whatever it is. I mean, all those variety of things that we used to have available to us, we just, we don't do anymore. You know, you go to the store, you buy well, a, a plastic you, box of greens. Yep. You're right. But you mentioned dandelions and I think it's really important. And I don't mean to interrupt your thought process, but for the folks out there, do not kill the dandelions on your lawn. Don't, don't spray them. Don't get rid of them. That's generally the first food source in our area that bees have in the spring when they're first coming out of their hives and they're, and they're looking to get nutrients and plus up. And I see people in this anti-dandelion campaign because of, uh, you know, modern suburbia, your lawn has to be perfectly green and there can't be one, you know, uh, dandelion weed. It's very pivotal to maintaining the pollinator population that we have here because of our four-season climate that we don't disrupt, uh, you know, that food source for the bees. So I just wanted to throw that in there, and I, and I apologize for, for jumping your, your train, and I hope you didn't lose your train of thought. I'll let you go back to it, though. No, no I was finishing up, and, and you made me feel better because we've got a, a, a 30 acres here and, and quite a bit of pasture up above us, and every spring it is a carpet of yellow. <laughs> With dandelions. And all I'm thinking of, man, all those dandelion seeds are floating over to New Hartford and killing everybody's lawn. But now I feel good about it. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a good thing. And I'll be honest with you, there's there's farmers, um, you know, uh, just north of New York City that actually cultivate dandelions for some of these higher end restaurants because the dandelion greens are coming back into vogue. People are starting to recognize that there's some nutritional value there. Um, and And like I said, you can go out, or like you said, you can go out and you can forage that. You can forage mustard greens. You can forage a lot of things, um, a lot of wild mushrooms in this area because of the humidity. So, you know, I think people have lost that. They've lost that connection. 
Absolutely. Steve, you have been very generous with your time. I really, really appreciate it. I want to give you the last word in case there's something we didn't cover that you wanted to add in and then give uh, folks a way of getting hold of you and checking out your farm. Perfect. I really appreciate that. Well, the first thing I would say is anytime you're going to transition to a new supplement or you're thinking about altering your diet, do a lot of research. Um, there's a lot of open source information. Everybody's walking around with a smartphone. Do some research before you do any dramatic uh, changes to your diet or before you incorporate newer different things. Natural is, is king. Natural is the best. If you can find the least adulterated products uh, to be putting in your body, putting on your family's table, then that is always the right answer in my opinion. Um, you are a great source for this bee pollen because you, uh, you've come to us and you've, you've gotten the bee pollen specifically for your customers. So of course they can access it through you. Um, you can, you can access any of the Piacentino farm products at, uh, com. We have a e-commerce page up and of course they're always welcome to come to the public markets as well. The United County public market, which is on Saturday, the, the second and fourth Saturday during the winter from nine to one, as well as the, excuse me, Whitesboro Public Market, which is at the Dunham Public Library, the first and third Monday uh, of every month. Fabulous. I look forward to seeing you there. Smaller farmers like Stephen are really the ones who are bringing agriculture back to being healthy again. It's so true. The organic label is helpful in that you won't be ingesting as many pesticides, herbicides sprayed on the product, the produce. However, it doesn't mean that the quality of the food's any good. So really, the best thing you can do, the absolute best, is grow it yourself. Even if it's a little bit of lettuce in your windowsill or some herbs you can put on your salad, that's the best that you can do. In the absence of that... Go to your local farmer's market. Get to know the farmers. Talk to them about their soil. If their eyes light up when you ask them about their soil, you know that they're taking good care of their plants because that's really part of where the health of the plant comes from is from the soil. It's important as somebody who has chronic illness to have a very, very good quality source of food. The nutrients in the food are as important as the food you, you choose yourself. So a healthy plant, a healthy animal, something grown sustainably with a lot of nutrients is going to be a lot better for you than some empty calories that you buy, even from some fancy place like Whole Foods or around here it's Wegmans, something like that in the organic aisle. Really, support your local farmers when you can, buy local when you can, and do your homework on the farmer. Talk to them. See how they're doing their food. You'll be glad you did. Your body will be glad you did. Promise. And grow something yourself. Get a pot of soil. Throw a little tomato plant in there. Eat some fresh tomatoes. Grow your own lettuce. Basil. We have basil growing in the windows right now through winter. Do something. Something small. It really helps a ton. Promise. Okay, enough about farming and nutrients. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We love to read them, and they're very helpful for us climbing up the rankings so more people can find out about Lime Ninja Radio. 
And if you really like what we're doing, head on over to patreon.com and donate to Lime Ninja Radio. If you donate at the $10 level, we will send you a copy of our top 10 Lime Ninja transcripts. Yes, the Lime Ninja top 10 transcripts are the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like Dr. Richard Horowitz, Brenda Costantino, the Real Food Rebel, and genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. And if you have any feedback for us, just send it to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. We'd love to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. Also, if you don't know your Lime score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker and fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. And if you're wondering my, my, why my voice is so croaky this morning, <laughs> A, it's 6 a.m. We usually record in the evening at 6 a.m. And I spent last night coaching the cross, screaming on the sideline. And it was very windy and hard to communicate. And I'm not necessarily an angry coach, but there's just a lot of screaming <laughs> going on. If you're trying to shout across 100 meters, 100 yards, it's tough to do. <laughs> So that's what's going on. I'm not falling sick. Don't worry about me. We'll be better next week. I'll drink some something, some honey. You should, I, was I should have say some honey some with honey. lemon. That's what we should have done this morning. <laughs> also, please join us at the Midcoast Lime Conference on April 28th. The conference is free. The organizers have done extra work to bring in sponsors, so it doesn't cost us Lime people, anything. So all you need to do is get yourself there. The Midcoast Lime Conference. Midcoast, Maine, that is. Just look it up, Google it, and you will find it. We'll be interviewing the promoters in the next couple of weeks, so we'll have more information about that. Yes, I'm really excited about that, actually. Yes, and we get to meet you. So yes. come on out and we can shake your hand. And last, as you long-time Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete Unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know a ninja never reads the news? Because they are the news. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.